Welcome to the podcast, Whiskey and a Map. Stories of adventure and expeditions as told by those who live them. I'm your host, Michael Reinhardt. It has been said that many adventures and expeditions start simply with a map and a glass of whiskey. A desire to go and see the world's wild places. You're invited to pull up a chair, pour yourself a glass of your favorite whiskey, and join us as we hear stories from another one of our friends just returned from the field. I'd like to introduce you to a friend of mine, Janie McGill. Janie is an explorer and endurance athlete. She is part of the newest generation of explorers. She is a military veteran serving four years as a soldier with the Honorable Artillery Company. When not out adventuring, she works as a consultant advising on cultural awareness and personal security. Jenny, welcome. How are you doing? Hey, very well, thank you. Very well indeed. It's a pleasure to be able to reach out and talk to you on this uh, on this podcast. Jenny, tell us a little bit about what you do. When I found out about you and came across your materials, the one thing that stuck out was when you referenced yourself, you just said, I walk a lot. Oh my, that's a really good question. Uh, because I tend, I wouldn't put myself in one camp, to be honest. Um, I do, I definitely walk a lot. You know, on the on the one hand, you, you could say at a certain point of my life, I you could say I was an explorer. I was a lawyer at one stage, but I don't really regard myself as anything in particular. And now, you know, with the work that I'm doing with a 81 power drink, I'm a photographer. I, you know, I do social media. I draw on all my skills, essentially. Um, which, which is great. But then equally, I'm writing a book, so I could be a writer, but I'm also making a film. So maybe I'm a filmmaker. I don't, it's, it really varies. But there's a core character trait about you that I think went all the way back to your days when you're out in the Mojave Desert near uh, Las Vegas. And it seems that you just can't keep still and need to go out and see what's out there in the wilds. I think that's, yeah, I think that you're right. I think um, for me to settle is is quite a difficult thing. I I do get quite bored easily, and so I need a lot of stimulation. But you know, I had a huge amount of stimulation as a child. I think you know, I I took after my my late father, who was always seeking adventure causing trouble somewhere or you know for for stimulation that's what I think anyway so yeah I'm quite wired in that way why the extreme challenges why um I don't really know if I know the answer to that question it's more of a a necessity and a a draw and a pull in me to do that you know, I never, as a child, I never thought I'm going to be an explorer or I, I'm going to, you know, do adventures for the rest of my life because I think my life just always was that. And then, you know, our experiences and, and what happens to us leads us to different things, opens different doors. I mean, I wouldn't 
I wasn't brought up in a conventional manner. You know, my my father was pretty unconventional, really. Um, and as I said before, sort of sought adventure. But equally, he could not go out for two or three weeks. You know, so I, it's it's I I feel all very confused about it, to be honest, and what um, and why I am the way I am, and it's. You know, it's something I, I opened that can of worms probably in 2013 after a, I split with a, a boyfriend. And he said, actually, he said something really scathing and horrible, which was also a huge catalyst for where I am today. He said, and this was down to the drinking as well, because I was a bit of a partier. And he said, I don't want the mother of my children to behave like you. And I was like, oh, wow that really hit hard. You know, I think I was in my early thirties and I guess it can't, you know, it comes to the stage where society says, you know, you need to be thinking about settling down now. And, and he said, you know, do, do you want to have children? Do you want to get married? And it hadn't even crossed my mind. And so he, he opened this, this Pandora's box of, deep reflection on what I want out of my life and it wasn't children or marriage but that equally was was very frightening because I thought well then what is this life about you know what you know isn't it nobody's life I think is ever easy um there's always going to be struggles uh, along with the joys you know they I think they all come all these sort of dualities happen together but I did really think, well, if I'm here, I've got to make it worthwhile. Um, and if I'm not having children and sort of extending my line, then I need to leave some kind of legacy. And I wasn't sure what that legacy was going to be. And maybe I'm still not now, but but I, you know, I, I started life modeling because I, one thing that always remains is art. And so I did, I thought, well, okay, I can remain in art. And so I did a lot of that. And that took me to some really interesting places and meeting really interesting people as well. And I thought, because I was running an art gallery at the time too. So to be on the other side of the, of the, you know, of the art or being immersed in, in every aspect of it was, was really interesting also. I'm not sure if I answered your question. I think I might have digressed a little bit. Well, you, you did digress a little bit, but all these were formative for you to, I mean, there's a curiosity there, right? Yeah, a huge amount of curiosity about everything um, and people as well, I think. Before we go to the empty quarter in your adventure, mm -hmm. is there any particular explorer or adventure past or present that you would like to emulate there is there's one lady a past explorer called Gertrude Bell and I don't know a huge amount about her actually I know that she spent a huge amount of time in the Middle East as an uh, I think she was a cartographer and I think she she may have, she was working with government. I know that. And there's a wonderful film, um, which actually flopped at the box office, unfortunately, but Queen of the Desert, it was called with Nicole Kidman. 
And that was a, a magic film. I think I, I don't want to emulate her, but I have a huge amount of admiration for her. And those, you know, those, those women it, 120 years ago that, that were doing that and, and paving that way, I think was, you know, people say it's brave to do it in this time and age, but to do it back then, I mean, you know, when I suppose patriarch, patriarchy was properly rife, you know, I think it still is, but it, a different scale back then, you know, I just think, wow, that must have take, taken some, some balls to do that. So, yeah, Gertrude Bell. She was a pioneer and did break through a lot of barriers. But now let's turn to your big adventure, the expedition across the Empty Quarter. Where is Oman and what is the Empty Quarter? So Oman is a country in, on the Arabian Peninsula. And it's on the, coast, the coastline and it borders Yemen to the south and Saudi Arabia and the UAE. So there is a small little choke point and opposite the, I can't remember what sea it is now, but Iran is um, opposite the, the channel. And, and that little, little choke point is where I think 90% of the world's oil comes through. So it's really important on the geopolitical stage. And the UK and Oman have had a very strong relationship for hundreds of years. Probably because of that, you know, it's essential for us and our trade um, to have friendly relations there. But Oman is a really beautiful, beautiful country. And it's a a very um, peaceful country, given all the contentious areas around it. And that, that was one of the things that the leadership... Sultan Qaboos, how he managed to keep that little peaceful enclave. And then the more I read about him, the more I understood that he was, um, you know, a mediator on the world stage. He would bring leaders together to try and reduce or stop bloodshed. Can we sort this out in another way? Does it have to come to blows? And that that fascinated me because I think that is rare. And what are the people like, the average folks in Oman? unnervingly friendly (laughs) it took me a while to get used to their friendliness and their hospitality so and it made me realize how cynical I am about people um, and how untrusting I am maybe maybe that was 15 years of living in London could be Um, but no hugely hospitable and you know as soon as you arrive everybody's saying you're welcome in Oman. Welcome. And they'll invite you around into their into their family home and feed you. And it's a magic. It's magical. Now, your trip was by foot through what is commonly called the empty quarter. What is the empty quarter? The empty quarter is the world's largest sand desert. So it spans four countries, Yemen, UAE, Saudi Arabia, and Oman. And I, with two of my teammates, Beda and Athea, two Omani women, we walked a good chunk of Oman's empty quarter. 
why the empty quarter? Why did you want to go there and do this? Uh, well, I had the opportunity. The same boyfriend that said, I don't want the mother of my children to behave like this. He actually took me to Oman. He served in the British Army and he uh, trained over there. So he took me there on holiday. I'd always been fascinated with the Middle East, always. I think it was so far removed from what I knew growing up. It was mysterious and, you know, just there's a curiosity coming out again. I I wanted to know more. But he had a little arrowhead, ancient arrowhead in his wallet that he kept. And he showed this to me and I was like, oh, my God, that's so cool. Where did you get it? And he was like, oh, it's from the empty quarter. And I was like, what is this empty quarter? And then I started reading about that and I was like, oh, my God, this looks amazing. You know, the desert has a such a, a, a draw for, for me anyway, such a draw and a mystery. And so... Um, I went in 2012, I think it was, not to the empty quarter, but I went to the smaller desert in Oman, Shakir Sands, and I was like, oh, wow, this is, I don't know, there's a feel about it and like a lovely energy. And after that, I thought, I knew, I know I'm going to go back to the empty quarter. I'm just not sure when. And then course of events led me to it. It was a very much an evolution. And why do they call it the empty quarter? I think it's because it is in quarters, as in four quarters in each country, maybe. Do you know, I did know this, but I think that's it. can't remember now. Time's gone on. Not many people live there, right? No, there's, there's a couple of military camps, and there are a couple of Bedouin settlements. So... One that we we went through was just two, uh, two kilometers from the Saudi border, and oh my god! Like I know Omani people are hugely generous and hospitable, but the Bedouin are just something else. I think if they could give you their right arm, they would. You know, it was I was embarrassed by their hospitality. I I didn't know how to thank them enough. You know. But yeah, so people are living there. I don't think in the way that they probably used to. I don't, you know, it's not nomadic now. As I understand, the Sultan helped them build infrastructure, you know, so they do have water deliveries and they do have electricity. I think that was as well from a security point of view to have people and to stop, to have settlements there to prevent smugglers coming across the desert because that that was a risk a potential risk is the smugglers smugglers coming from Saudi Arabia through uh, the southern southern Oman part of the desert and into Yemen we had to have our wits about us in certain areas just in case now setting off for this expedition across the empty quarter what was the general plan not die that's that's a good start. <laughs> that was kind of my my main thing. Is that the general plan was to walk from A to B, Al Hashman, to Ibri Fort, which was approximately eight hundred kilometers. And we had, I mean, fortunately, Land Rover 
really loved the idea because the aim of the expedition was was to deliver the message that we're better together, regardless of culture, um, identity and gender differences. That was a story that was good for them. So they sponsored us with vehicles. So we had two vehicles which were heavily laden with supplies, you know, food, water, fuel, everything to stop us. I want to talk about you personally and how you prepared for this arduous trek across a a famous and famously difficult desert. What did you do to prepare yourself physically and mentally for that challenge? Physically, I walked the dogs. I I did a couple of long walks along the Thames, maybe, I don't know, maybe three 20 mile walks, but not a huge amount, to be honest, because we're going to be in the desert for a month, you know, and my reckoning was from previous walks that I'd done, I can spend all the time in the world training, but I'm going to get fit as I go anyway. And I think as well, time on feet was important. You know, it's all well and good walking for an hour and then sitting at a desk for eight hours, but actually you're going to be on your feet for, I don't know, eight, nine, 10 hours a day. And that's, so even if I wasn't walking, I would try to be on my feet. Um, And I did also stop drinking so much. I wanted my body to get used to not having, not being completely hydrated. I don't know if there's any science behind it or whatever, but to me, it made logical sense. I was just like, okay, just in case, just sort of start restricting your water intake so your body gets used to operating that way. And that was useful. Did you do anything to mentally prepare yourself for this long trek across the desert? You know, I think mentally I was so, um, I was really rather lost at the time. And I was, I just wanted to be away from everything. I wanted to take myself away from society, really. I felt very overwhelmed by it. So it wasn't a hardship mentally for me. It was a relief. I didn't want phone signal. I didn't want showers. I didn't want comfort. I I just wanted to survive. Uh, maybe it was a some kind of primal instinct or something, but some a lot of the time it's it's odd. But I feel like comfort is sometimes a discomfort to me. I haven't quite worked out my what comfort zones are. You know. You see these memes and what have you, and they're saying, get out of your comfort zone. And I'm like, I, d- I don't know what it is. <laughs> I get so confused by it. Um, so no, mentally, and, and, but the, the distance did not bother me either because I knew before I'd, I can walk day after day. I can put one foot in front of the other day after day. It might get a bit painful, but that's, I can handle that. What, shocked me the most mentally was the team dynamics and leading that team and not being able to get away from it. Who were your teammates and how did you select them? So my teammates, I I think we found each other really. It wasn't a selection process as such. It was kind of like, okay, I need people. Uh, my selection, <laughs> I found, I was introduced to people I I put out a few feelers, you know, I need a driver. Um, So 
I had uh, I had a few people, but there was one one guy, Mark, who said, "I'm game," and I was like, "Brilliant, you're in," because <laughs> really, for somebody to go away for one month, I'm not paying them. You know, this is not a, a paid journey. This is a, a are you are you keen? This is what I want to do. I want to challenge prejudices, stereotypes, and and all of this. And if people were game, I was like, bingo in brilliant you know and and it was it was enthusiasm basically that the the girls I met through um I'd been on a couple of reckeys to Oman and I met a few people through people and then Maggie Jeans a, a British lady who's lived in Oman for the past 30 odd years she knows everyone she's the yellow pages of Oman you know and she said we met um these are lots of random things happen. I ended up at the British ambassador's house and that's where I met Maggie. And she had not seen a new face for quite some time. So she made a beeline for me and said, oh, this is very interesting. And she actually was awarded an OBE, um, Order of the British Empire, if, if you're not familiar, for her, the work that she'd done building relationships between the UK and Oman. So my project was of huge interest to her. And she helped me a huge amount and introduced me to one of my teammates, Bader, who is a just wonderful. Uh, but again, she had that enthusiasm, and you know, none of none of the pe- people were the fittest or the strongest, but they just had the heart and the will to do it, and that's what was important to me. We could deal with the rest of the stuff; it wasn't a problem, you know. And it was kind of just one big social experiment, I think, at the end of the day. <laughs> Interestingly, I had a few, I had a very um, influential chap get in touch with me and he said, you know, I've, re- I've helped uh, select teams for these type of trips. I, I can help you. And I was like, I'm really grateful for that help, but I don't have the time or the money to be able to put into that. So you know, so I was self-funding it. I didn't have a big body behind me that was funding this. So I had to be careful. And um, when he did, I could see the looks in his eyes and what, you know, when you see someone's brain ticking and you think, you you don't think this is going to work. <laughs> but I quite like that because it fuels me more. And I just think this is going to work. This is definitely going to work. It might be hard, but I'm going to do it. <laughs> um, so, yeah, there was. And, and then Athea, I met through um, a friend of mine, Mohammed, who I had met on another recce. You know, so it was all it was all through people. It wasn't a, I'm doing this apply and I go through loads of CVs. I didn't I didn't want that. Now, let's go to the first days. As as you're ready to set out on this trek across the empty quarter, as you take your first steps, if we were there with you, what would we see? A team of six people who were very excited, who were going into a unknown. We are, we're a handful of strangers, and I think you'd you'd feel as well as seeing the, the, the kind of energy and excitement 
of of what's going to happen. You know, that element of kind of what are we going to discover? What's it going to be like? How's it, you know, what's the sand going to be like? We get, there's so many questions, so much curiosity, I think. And that kind of uh, underlying sense of how's this going to work out? <laughs> Just how are we gonna, okay, we're doing it. <laughs> we're doing it. So those first steps of commitment. Yeah. And, and and kind of, yeah, just excitement. I mean, relief as well. i got to tell you, Mike, because we were 10 days delayed trying to get the relevant permissions. It was a nightmare. Um, but we all clubbed together. We all, you know, um, used our contacts. And Maggie Jeans again came in. She introduced us to brigadiers and all sorts of things so we could get those permissions over the line. And... Um, and we did it. So it was a massive relief. As we're looking out at the starting area, what does the land look like? It was kind of, it was dark as we were coming in. So we were coming down a track. It was kind of rocky, rocky, sandy. It wasn't proper big dunes as you imagine to be yet. And we stopped, um, we'd come off the tarmac, we were on a track and we stopped at kind of this little shack sort of thing. It was a garage. And we had to let the, the air out the tires. And there was there was chicken wire with and loads of birds, chickens, I think they were chickens, in this pen. And I don't know what they were doing there or whatever, but so we let the air down and then we were getting into the dunes, into the cool stuff, you know. And it was sort of kind of dusk before as we sort of found our first campsite. And Matt, the filmmaker. He did a couple of interviews with us just as the sun was setting. And there was just, yeah, an element of surprise. How many days did it take you to cross that desert? It was 28 days, I believe. 28 days, I think. And what was temperature like during uh, not only the day, but a few people really realized how cold the desert could be at night. What was the temperature like? So the temperature, I had a mountain sleeping bag. Imagine that. So a proper thick sleeping bag. And I had a rab um, puffer jacket for the night and a hat. So it was that cold at night. Um, during the day, it would vary probably between about 35 and 42. But at every morning. That's Celsius. At Oh, that's, that's Celsius, right? Oh, gosh. Yeah, because you're in um, Fahrenheit, aren't you? I don't. Oh, I can't help you there. Might have to oh, do a translation, Mike. <laughs> was it hot? Oh, yeah. Like at 10 o'clock in the morning, it would literally go like that. The heat would hit you around the face. And you'd be like, well, okay, now we sort of slow down a little bit. And then at two o'clock in the afternoon, once again, another great big whack in the face. And it it did feel like that. It was like a wave. It was quite odd. And then, you know, obviously by two o'clock, it was really hot. So we were like, okay, really slowing down. There were some days, and I used to do it, I used to gauge how hot it was by my water intake. So on a on a cooler day, I'd do three liters of water, but on a hot day, I'd do five. You know, so I think 
I carried five liters a day, not always drinking at all. But yeah, it could get really hot. Now, walking over rough gravel mixed with sand, physically, did that take a toll? Um, the terrain really varied. You know, there was some, there'd been heavy rains, really heavy rains. So there were, you imagine, there were six kilometer flats surrounded by these enormous dunes. So you'd have these flats. And the ones that hadn't been, they had been lakes, by the way. That's how much rain they'd had, that people were actually putting boats on them at one stage in the middle of the desert. So there was that much water. And you'd get, um, it was like walking on terracotta sometimes. You know, the, the ground had dried out and cracked. So some bits were like that. And walking on that was kind of tough. The big red dunes that you imagine, you pick your spot and you kind of get to know the terrain and where it's going to be soft and where it's going to be hard, where the wind blows, you know, on on the lee side, whatever side it's called. But yeah, I mean, it took its toll. I was pretty hardened to walking anyway, you know. Like I said, I walk a lot. So the girls, I think, struggled with more injuries than what I did and poor Athea she she's kind of had a pulled a groin muscle on the first day so we we had to change tactics a little bit and go for the flatter routes rather than going over the top because she was struggling with her you know lifting her her leg so we we <laughs> we had to devise a, a a bandage system where she would have it she would help her leg lift with a walking stick bandaged it oh yeah like these girls are incredible and then they did it because they're they're uh they didn't get on so well with the walking boots and shoes so actually Bader and Thea walked pretty much the whole desert in flip-flops and Birkenstocks you know I thought that's pretty cool <laughs> but it worked um, right oh yeah and so, you know, sometimes we take our shoes off because it was nice. The The sand was felt good between your toes, you know. Now, along the way, you sort of mentioned this earlier, but you came across the locals who live there. Can you tell us about them? Yeah. So it's it's tribal, right? So you have areas of people where you have different tribes named. So... Ahmed and Salem were from the Kathiri tribe. And the Kathiri tribe actually escorted Wilfred Thesiger through the empty quarter back in the day when he was crossing. So they were over the moon. When, and news travels fast, right, as well. They were over the moon that we were doing this. And they came and found us on a couple of occasions, bringing us uh, bananas and coconuts, you know. And, and one night, they came and joined, and I don't know how they found us, but I guess this is their, you know, this is their manner, so they know it, right? And one night they came with the goat that we'd seen a couple of days prior, <laughs> that, you know, the lovely little white goat, um, and that night we ate that goat. Because um, <laughs> they just, they were, they're so proud 
of of their their area and their desert and to share it when people come and they want to share it with you you know it, it's a it's a magic thing and like i said the hospitality or like wow and in fact ahmed he ended up taking leave from work putting sand tires on his big gmc truck and he found us again in the desert and didn't leave us for a week you know he was just like it's too much i i can't bear it i'm so worried about you i just need to be with you and make sure that you're okay you know and he came with a he he'd gone so he was he was living in salala but he he gone he got fresh fish he got camel goat he filled his pickup with food fresh food for us and it was really you know greatly appreciated because the sort of stodgy pasta was <laughs> not <laughs> it's a little old yeah it gets a little old i mean it's all right but no for, for him to do that was really uh, a wonderful thing and did you come across any other tribes there yeah, in in Almanada, where the two kilometers away, you know, the permanent Bedouin settlement now from uh, two kilometers from Saudi Arabia. Sorry, um, but there were oil fields as well. So as we move further north towards Ibri, there were oil fields. So on one of the previous recce's, uh, we had stopped in. A friend Abdullah had taken me on a recce. And we had stopped in at one of the oil fields because um, we were running low on fuel. So I got chatting with him, and this was probably a year prior to us actually starting the expedition. And I stayed in touch with him, and I said, we'll be coming through. And he said, well, make sure you you call in and you stay with us for a night. So, you know, the the guys, they, they gave us a, a room each um, f- for the night. And, you know, it was that that generosity and that hospitality, um, which Oman is renowned for. Um, I, as I said, I've never quite experienced anything like it. When you were out there, what was the strangest or most interesting thing you came across or saw? So I don't know if you're familiar um, with the jinn. It, it's kind of mythology or... I don't know how you, it's part of Islam. It's the jinn is like an alternate world or universe. And it's really, um, there's the jinn of the land, the sea and the air. And they're, ev- they're everywhere. And it's, it's a big thing in Islam, you know, to see the jinn, right? So the jinn are spirits? I guess we could uh, we could imagine them like that. I don't know if the Arabs would say it was a spirit. I would say it's more of an alternate universe. I mean, maybe spirits are an alternate universe. And it's not mythology to them. It's it's real. It's very real. And anyway, there was one night. And I, I would sleep by the fire. Everyone else slept in tents, but I didn't like that. I like being under the, the sky and by the fire on the rug and on a couple of occasions the girl's friends would come to visit us you you know because the whole theme for me was better together you know people want to come 
fabulous, wonderful and be part of it. Anyway, so two friends came and um, it was probably about three in the morning. So pitch black, we're in the like middle of nowhere, you know, and we only sort of communicated. They only found us by the coordinates that we sent them when we arrived, uh, by the little garments that we had. And uh, anyway, I stirred and I looked over by a truck and I saw a figure in grey. And I didn't think anything of it because I thought it was one of the lads. I thought I must have got up and gone to the toilet or something. Anyway, so I turned around and I went back to sleep again. And then in the morning when we woke up, one of the we were having tea and coffee and that, and one of the lads came over and he said, you saw it, didn't you? I said, what do you mean? I said, I, I saw so-and-so going to the toilet. He said, no, he was asleep. He said, you saw it. I know you did. I went, yeah, I definitely saw something. I know that. And look, I don't know. Maybe I did. Maybe I didn't. But that was probably one of the strangest things. He yeah, he saw it. How did he know what you saw? Exactly. I don't know. But he said you saw it. Did you ask your old friends about it? About what you saw? No, they were just jealous. <laughs> <laughs> they were, really? Oh my God, you saw the gin? I was like, I don't know. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> so I don't know if it was or not. <laughs> you know, so everyone searches for the gin. An encounter with the gin. Yeah. <laughs> do you ever reflect on that and think about what it was? Yeah, I do. Because for me, it was a figure. It was a, a grave, a figure in a gray dish dash. And kind of leaning against a car, looking to the side. I, but then, you know, when when you when you Google it and you see images of the gin, it's other people's interpretation of of what it might look like. But there was another weird thing. Um, prior to us going, I was on a, I went out on a on a boat with Maggie, and there was a party on a boat. And um, there was one chap who made a beeline for me. I don't know. And he he said that he was like the door to the other world, the, the gin. They spoke to him. He's like, you know, when I'm sat on the toilet, they're, they're on the shelves, they're everywhere. And I'm like, okay. Now, a lot of people think you're mental, right, when people start saying this, but there is that, but there's also a lot of stuff that we don't know about. And there's a lot of possibility out there that we shrug off because we're uncomfortable with it. And I, so I'm, I'm open. I don't believe and I don't disbelieve. I'm just open to those, those things. You know, it does seem that once you get out of the city, once you get away from civilization and all the noise, Mm. goes away that you become much more in tune with with the environment with the animals with everything and i've had many people describe once they got into that place be it intuition or whatever you start to see things that make you want to go <laughs> ask yourself did i really see that or you know hey did you see that because i don't want to be uh Considered crazy. 
but uh, <laughs> and, I'm, and I'm not really articulating as good as others, but you know, um, like Amos Rodriguez, he referred to it as he sees the magical stuff out there. Yeah. You know, others have just being able to sense things. Did you find that as, as you continued day after day and you got farther and farther removed from cell phones and internet and all the other noise, a better sense of the place? Do you know, I was struggling so much with my own confidence and the dynamics of the team at that point that I was very much engrossed in that. And whilst you you can't ignore the beauty of the desert because it's so, there aren't words that you can use to describe it, to be honest. You just have to f- feel it when you're there, you know, there's a, it's just I, the only thing that comes close, I guess, is magic, um, that, that feeling. But I was so engrossed in what was going on and where I was going wrong. And, you know, the weaknesses that I had and how they were affecting other people and other people's weaknesses. So I was trying to work all of this out and how, you know, because I think I lost the trust of my teammates as well, because, you know, my my big weakness was people pleasing and I couldn't keep everybody happy. And, you know, there were there were characters who kind of brought up memories for me, um, you know, of, of the relationship that I have with my father. And and so it was all very raw um, for me at the time. So there was a huge amount of self-reflection going on, but also at the same time, how can I fix this? How can I make this better? So that, that you know, I was, abs- I was torn, internally torn, in, in conflict and and sort of self-doubt and you know how I, I just want to make this this better and and I was just I was lost for a little bit I didn't know which way to turn but there was nowhere to turn you know I, I you just have to get on and and deal with it and it was awful <laughs> it was so awful I mean those are classic challenges of of leadership and especially leadership in extremes. How did your ability as a leader, how did you grow as a leader of an expedition through that? I think I was aware of my weaknesses, people pleasing and lack of communication. And there is a, it's not an excuse, but maybe a reason, but I'm constantly thinking, how can we improve? How can this be made better? And I'm always tweaking things, always tweaking. But the speed of my thought doesn't come out of my mouth. So my bound, I I haven't set boundaries for people because the boundaries for me are always changing as well. And I don't think, Arguably, I don't know if you can have too many boundaries when you're in a scenario like that, because you have to change and you have to adapt with the circumstances, with an injury, with a car failure, with whatever it might be. You know, there there aren't specific boundaries. It's just we're going to do our best to get from A to B today. And whatever happens in between, we will deal with in whatever way. So those were the those were the two things and 
the people pleasing, you know, and and sort of avoidance of conflict. I thought conflict was a was a dirty word. Conflict needn't be a dirty word. It's just sorting out those those boundaries and 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 what people can what people can work within. I sat it's interesting now because I observe other people's leadership styles and as I said I'm in supporting roles now which I'm which I'm really enjoying from a from the perspective of helping other people because we can't do it on our own. Um, but also from the perspective of okay you're leading this now how how is everyone reacting or you know reacting with you and 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 all of this and actually in many ways i i <laughs> i can understand how people got frustrated with me because it happens elsewhere as well and i'm like ah <laughs> okay I get it now but then sometimes as well people want certainty and people want to know the answers sometimes you don't have the answers you know and that's that's really hard for people you know and you just like just just get on with it everyone's trying (laughs) you know and one foot in front of the other what did you discover about yourself throughout that journey if you don't mind sharing that uh, what did I discover about myself that I still had work to do? Oh, we yeah. all got work to do, no matter where we're at. Yeah, I put a huge amount of work into myself before, and I thought, oh, yeah, maybe I've made it now. And I was just like, no way, <laughs> I've not made it. Uh, but it give it gave me um, it gave me more uh, material to work with and, and and to improve and grow, and I think positive things I learned about myself is I don't if I want something I make it happen you know and it's as simple as that and if I'm drawn to do something I will do it so the, and I guess there's sorry by the look on your face and, and the tenor of your voice uh, I would gather that the person who s- took the first step of that trip was not the same person who finished the, the crossing line, but I can see that there's a uh, there must have been a recognition or a confidence in yourself that you came away with. Did you feel that? Not immediately, no. I think I can look back now, two years later, and go, "Well done." At the time, no way. I was beating myself up. I was saying, "You should have done that better. You could have. Why didn't you do that?" what am I doing next? Where am I going? You know, now what? But now I can look back and go, yeah, you did okay, kid. <laughs> Absolutely. But we're not across the line yet though, Mike, because there's still, you know, there's still work being done on this, the book and the film, and and it's not it's not complete by any means for me yet. It's just a different part. Well, let's move on to that. You working on a book, or the subject of which would be that trip across the empty quarter? Is the is a book of three parts basically. It's the, um, I mean, a lot of that trip. The reasons why I did it didn't really become clear until after I did it. 
And a lot of that was to try and understand the relationship that I had with my father, which was challenging. Um, he was a, a, a great man, but a very challenging man. And I think the first part of the book is just is looking at my life before the empty quarter. And then the second part is that is it, it turns into a diary, essentially. Um, because I did keep an in-depth diary of of the planning and and how I was feeling about things. And then part three is life after the expedition. So my father went straight into a hospice and and died three months later of cancer. So, and the emotions and the roller coaster of the expedition was then repeated in I like to call it his final adventure. And it was really interesting to to go through because I hadn't quite dealt with what had gone on in the desert. And yet I was dealing with this next thing as well. And our whole sort of relationship. And there was a huge emotions, anger, resentment, you know, all those sort of awful emotions that you feel. Um, and you feel awful for having them because, you're the, you know, there's this person that, that you love more than anything, but you've got all these horrible feelings. And I guess that's grief. You know, I, those are the, the stages of grief. And when I look back now and I was, those were the things that I was going through. So, yeah, so, so the book is a autobiographical memoir, if you like. And it's. What's the title of the upcoming book? The title of the book is Her Faces of Change. And that's what the ex- the expedition was called, Oman, Her Faces of Change. Then you mentioned a movie? Yes. So I had Matt, who's actually in California, as it goes, filmmaker. He came very last minute to Oman because I had, as I said, I had massive problems with permissions. So Matt stepped in last minute. And he's currently editing the second cut. As to your other interests, there's a uh, group that you're working with. Looks like it's sponsored by 81 Power Drink. And what are you doing with them? So 81 Power Drink and 81 Racing Heroes really go hand in hand. So my, my boss, if you like, he had a vision to set up a racing team uh, that was run by veterans, uh, ex-service personnel. And I am one of those myself. I was in the um, reserves for a while uh, and broke my back, unfortunately. So anyhow, I I got involved with, with Peter and his vision to set up a veterans racing team. And we've been working together for the last 18 months, but it's really evolved to um, include the wider disabled community as well. So we are working as a racing team with disabled drivers. So using hand controls to race um, and also able-bodied drivers as well. So, and men and women and veterans. So we're a completely inclusive team and working with some really very cool companies to take that 
hand-controlled technology forwards um, to open open it up to more people. Do you get to get behind the wheel yourself? I'm hoping so. <laughs> so you that get is of, the plan. That so is, you could add racing is driver to your long uh, resume. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I hope so. There will there will be a time. I I don't know if it's going to be this year though, because we have a, an incredibly busy schedule with uh, with what we have going on already. So we'll be racing in Europe a lot this year in the GT series and the Lamborghini Super Trofeo, where we'll have cars which are convertible, not in a roof way but adaptable so we have able-bodied and disabled drivers driving the same car in the same race you know so it's really exciting it's dead exciting do you have a plan to do an expedition through central asia yes mike i do (laughs) can you share that with us yeah sure i so i grew up on horses right and my favorite horse was the akalteki and it's this most incredible ancient breed from Turkmenistan. And the horse is, is just beautiful, really almost looks like a greyhound, very unique looking. And there has an incredible story um, behind it. And I want to, I'm not sure how the expedition is going to take shape and how I'm going to do it what's possible, what I want to do, because given my experiences now from Oman, it will, it has altered my my feelings on how I run this next one. But the trip would be from Ashgabat in Turkmenistan through Uzbekistan, Kazakhstan, and Russia into Moscow. So it's a two and a half thousand mile journey um, through the desert, through the mountains, um, through the plains. Uh, and it's it's following uh, this journey of a this journey to save this breed of horse, the golden horse of Turkmenistan. Now, when it's going to happen, I'm not sure. I am. I needed a break. <laughs> I needed a break from Oman, and also I want to get the book and the film out first before I'm. But I am again have, starting to have some conversations with some people about it. Planting some seeds, shall we say. Excellent. Is it going to be by horseback or on foot? Very good question. As I said, I'm not... In an ideal world with my rose-tinted spectacles on, it would be on horseback, on the Akalteki horses. Um, I think it depends on logistics and funding, essentially. And... Because that would be that would be a whole new logistical nightmare far beyond what the desert threw at me. Once you've got horses and vets and I just I'll get there. <laughs> I just need to work out what what it's gonna be, whether it's an expedition or, or a film or a documentary on the journey. I I'm not sure. I'm not sure. What advice would you give to the Next generation of explorers coming up. Step by step, slowly. You know, I mean, sometimes someone could look at me and say, oh, she's done the desert and feel overwhelmed. But 
you really need to dig behind the scenes and see that it was a very slow evolution to to get there and and these things don't happen overnight i say just go for a walk you know go for a walk and open your eyes and look around you know there's there's incredible things just on your doorstep and then the more curious you become the braver you get the more confidence you get you know it doesn't it is slow it's slow and it's to be enjoyed that whole process is to be enjoyed but it takes that uh, that first step it is the the first step is the hardest step um but once you've taken that step there'll be harder steps as well but <laughs> you know by the time you've taken the first one i think you've you've broken the back of it and you've you've given yourself that little thing okay this is possible and also i would say speak speak to people but speak to the right try and speak to the right people you know the people that are out there doing these things but also to drown out the noise you know because there's lots of people who project their fears onto you you know oh this is why one thing I why I didn't tell my dad that I was doing this this desert trip for quite some time is because his fear for me would probably alter my perception on what I was doing and I didn't want that and I, but I knew that would happen so I think speak to the right people the people that have that can do go for it attitude and drown out the noise of the people saying well, why would you want to do that or you know, I think you need to be selective with who you surround yourself with, for sure. But again, you don't learn that overnight either. You know, it's just by slowly, slowly experiences and working out what's right for you. Are you still doing or were you doing consulting on personal safety? Oh, yes. If you could share with us uh, some thoughts and observations about how travelers and explorers can better prepare for their personal safety out there? So I think with personal safety, I think particularly as a woman, I'm very much more aware of it. I think particularly having lived in London and, you know, having been followed home on occasions and things like this, you know, you always do have to have your wits about you. And to never be complacent and that's really hard sometimes because if you're in a you know what you think is an idyllic beautiful place you're a target essentially and I do I do see myself as a target but there's a very fine balance you know because I also want to get to know a place and get to know the intricacies of it so I do talk to people I do take risks but I'm always kind of, I'm always ready, if you see what I mean. You know, one of the wonderful things about traveling is you are meeting different cultures and learning different things. And if you're so frightened that something's going to happen, you miss out on a huge amount. It's kind of a mitigating risk, really, I think. And I tend to go by my gut instincts as well. If I'm feeling uncomfortable or there's a funny vibe, I'm out. I'm, I'm gone or if I'm talking to somebody who's getting a little bit close or whatever exit you know done but you know as I said earlier 
there is also a, a cynicism in me, probably from being in London for so long, where I found the hospitality of some of the Omanis that overwhelming that I, until I got used to it, I thought I was, I could be in danger, you know. And it's, it's a very tricky one. I think it's a really tricky one to balance, but I think to have a fear that something is going to happen stops you seeing and experiencing a place. Um, but then equally you have to have that kind of, that awareness that something could happen. But more more happened in my hometown than what anything that has ever happened abroad. And there are other things, you know, practical things that you can do with your hotel keys and all of all of this kind of stuff. But I think really more getting the sense of the place. I, I go where I trust my intuition with that. That's real good advice. Knowing your environment, kind of getting in tune with your environment, keeping that awareness, but then being open. Yeah, I think very much so. I think on a practical point as well, orientate yourself. Know where you are, know where you're staying. You know, like I, I suppose I take it for granted. I just do it naturally. Where I, where am I? Where are the doors? Where, where are the exit points? How am I going to get out? Or what road do I have to come? I'm remembering that. Very good. Janie, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. And I hope you'll join us again once the, the book comes out. And actually, more importantly, once you reach, uh, I believe it's Moscow, on your Central Asian trip. <laughs> Mike, thank you so much for having me. It's been so lovely to chat. And right. uh, yeah, I, I very much look forward to coming back at a later date with another one under the belt. <laughs> Excellent. Well, we'll see you down the road. Yeah, you take care of yourself. Thank you for joining us. We'll see you down the road when we get together again, share a glass of whiskey, and hear more stories of adventure as told by those who live them. Until then, check us out at michaeljreinhardt.com where you'll find more of my work as an adventure photojournalist. Photos, videos, and articles of interesting people, mysterious places, and exotic cultures from the wild places of the world.